Awesome. Thank you guys for being here. Isn't Jesus good? Come on. All right. Welcome back to Chi Alpha, everyone. I am so glad to be with you all tonight. I know that God has got some really big things in store for this evening. I truly believe this, that no one is in this room by accident tonight, that everyone is here in their specific chair because God has called them to be there and God has got a plan for you. If this is your first time with us, I hope that you feel like you're at home. We are so very grateful that you decided to join us tonight. Please come meet me after service. My name is Derek. I'll try to give you a bro hug. I hope that you know that you are loved and that you are welcomed no matter what your background is. We are all a group of imperfect people seeking after a perfect God. So tonight we are starting off a new series. So if you're with us the last couple of weeks, we were talking about like love and dating and sex. So let's all give a round of applause. That's done. No more of that. I'm so excited to not talk about sex from the stage. It's going to be a good one. We're moving on to a new thing where we're going to talk about Jesus and his heart for us and how we can be a little bit more like him. Jesus gave us the example of what our lives should look like. Jesus was the king of all creation who created what we call the upside-down kingdom. What I mean by this when I say upside-down kingdom is I mean Jesus came down to earth. Jesus is God, and God came to earth. And when he came to earth, he could have easily been born of royalty. He could have become a king. He could have lived a life of luxury. He could have chosen rich parents. But no, our God came and lived as a poor child, a poor baby, born from like a 14-year-old girl, and came as a humble servant. He created an upside-down kingdom where the leader or the king of this kingdom is the greatest servant in this kingdom. And in Matthew chapter 16, he really illustrates his idea. He's talking to his disciples or his best friends, and he shows them what it looks like to follow him and to be a part of his kingdom. He says in Matthew 16, 24 through 26, then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? What Jesus is telling us here in this passage is that if we want to follow him and if we want to find true life, the key is to deny ourselves, pick up our crosses, and follow him. That is a radical statement. That the key to finding joy and life and happiness is denying ourselves and living for Jesus and living for the betterment of other people. If we as a community took this idea to heart and we decided that we're going to let Jesus rule our hearts, this whole campus would be turned upside down. We would become a community of people that are not focused on ourselves but are instead focused on each other. It would be a community that is so attractive that is world-changing. If we want to see this campus change forever, if you want to make a dent on this campus for the kingdom of God, and if you want to leave a legacy, the key is to let Jesus rule your heart. And instead of being focused on what's best for you in your time for college, the key is to be focused on what's best for the kingdom of God in your time in college. Over the next couple of weeks, we're going to dive into what it looks like when Jesus rules our hearts. And tonight, we're going to dive into how Jesus can change the focus of our lives from self to other people. Growing up, I'm going to be honest you guys, I was not a person who put others before myself. I was usually centered on how I could get ahead, how I could get the starting job in football, how I could make the choir one, and how I could get what I wanted. To give you a little backstory, 
every summer from the time I was in like sixth grade, I would invite 15 of my closest friends to my house. And we would participate in what became known as the Quimby, which is my last name, the Quimby Olympics, where we would come together, me and 15 other guys, and we would do four tournaments. So like we'd play a bunch of sports together for four different sports. We'd compete against each other to see who's the best. We would start with a riveting game of basketball. We'd move on to either usually a kickball or dodgeball, depending on what kind of mood I was in that year. Then we'd venture to soccer, which I always lost because I was really out of shape and could not last like 30 seconds. And then we'd end with the glorious game that is flag football. All of this in my backyard. And the way that we would decide teams was that I picked because it was my house. <laughs> so I painted the picture. I said, friends, if we truly want a great game, if we want to see excellence on the field of battle, the teams have to be fair. And if I don't pick them, they won't be fair. And for some reason, my friends went along with it. I think it's because my parents paid for all this stuff, so they felt like they had to. And I'll be real with you. Yes, I cared about fairness to an extent, but I cared more about one thing. That was winning. That was top priority. Number two was having fun, but number one was winning. I wanted to win so bad. I literally spent hours planning and prepping. I even created a website once. I created a video once to like introduce us just so I could bring my 15 friends over to beat them in sports. So in order to ensure my victory, what I would do is I would rank every player. So if you ever played like a sports video game, they give you like an overall, they give you like you're a 90 out of 100. I would do that with my friends and their athletic ability. Looking back, that's weird. I was so mean to them. I'm like, this kid is slow, giving him like a 7 out of 100. So I would rank them. And then I would put them in order 1 through 16. And what I said I did is I put like 1 with 16, 2 with 15, and so on and so forth to create teams of four people each. And that was roughly true. But then I would look at the, what happened and look at my team. And usually I would fudge the numbers a little bit so that my team was a little bit better. Because I didn't want it to be obvious. I didn't want to like have all the six foot six kids who had like beards in fifth grade. I didn't want to, that would be obvious. So I would just take like one of them and one short kid that only I knew, but I knew he was really fast. And so he'd be on my team. And I created the best team. If we have a picture, here's one of my teams. That's a good looking man right there. So the one on the far left, his name is Joey, and he was a little husky, so everyone thought he was terrible, and that was my secret weapon. He was the fastest kid I've ever seen, and he was like this big, this round, but he was so quick. He literally won us the football championship. The guy next to me was my best friend growing up, and he was much taller than everyone else, so he was on my team every year. But if we go to the next picture, we'll see all of us. And if you look on the far, you're right, you'll see an angry little drummer named John Griffin. So John is the guy who was playing drums back here, and John and I were good friends growing up, and he always came to these Olympic games. And he would always get mad at me, because he's the only one who I think figured it out. He said, dude, you're stacking the teams. This is not fair. And he would, like, scream at me. John and I don't fight ever, and we work together every day, but we fought so much about these stupid games. So this year, John thought they were going to have a great team. They made their own shirts. They got the team Britain. He was so cocky about it, too. He's like, oh, we got it. And I'm like... I was getting there. So as John ruined the climax of my story, every year I would stack my team. And every year except one, and I believe I did the seven years, I lost. I won one time, and I created the teams. I think that was God punishing me. 
for not being fair. Many of us in this room have struggled to be a little bit like young Derek and current Derek and be a little selfish. You think, what's best for me? How can I destroy my closest friends in basketball? And we as a society are so focused on what's best for us. How can I climb the social ladder? How can I get good grades? How can I find a spouse? That we struggle to be extremely me-focused. A.W. Tozer, who's an old dead guy, you hear me that terminology a lot. It's people who love Jesus a lot and they wrote books, but they've been dead for a long time. This is A.W. Tozer. It's actually three books in one. He wrote a book called The Pursuit of God. And my favorite old dead guy, A.W. Tozer, makes the argument in this book that a me-centered life is the greatest burden in humanity. He looks to the passage in Matthew 11 when Jesus tells his disciples, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you look at the rest of the Bible, Jesus does not say that living a Christian life is easy, so this doesn't make sense. How can there be trials and hardships in this walk with Jesus, but also a light burden? Tozer makes the argument that the biggest burden we have is not an exterior burden of people being mean to us or scrutinizing us, but the biggest burden we have is the burden of self, the burden of pride. He says that the labor of self-love is a heavy one. He asks the reader, and this convicted me so much, made me feel bad. How much sorrow have you had because of someone saying something negative about you? And I think of myself laying awake at night, thinking about someone who criticized me earlier in the day and how much it just tore me up and ruined my day because someone said something against me. I know when someone criticizes me, it does ruin my day. And the reason is because I'm the center of my own life a lot of times. When a person criticizes me or says I'm not doing something well or I lose, they're not just criticizing a part of me, they're criticizing everything because the center of my universe is me and my identity is not wrapped up in King Jesus, but instead how good I look. And Tozer argues that if we will truly put Jesus where he belongs, get this, if we will put him where he belongs, which is the center of our universe, the burden of self will go away. And if I come up short or if I don't look good to other people, it's okay. Because my identity is not in me. It's in my identity is in God. Jesus calls us to be like him. And one thing about Jesus, he was very meek. The word meek just means humble, unassuming. And Tozer says in his book, and I love this quote, the meek man cares not at all who is greater than he, for he has long ago decided that the esteem of the world is not worth the effort. Jesus makes our burden of life easier by removing the burden of self. It's okay if you aren't perfect or if someone is better than you at something because it's not all about you and everything rides on Jesus. Trying to advance ourselves in our own kingdom, trying to create the kingdom of self is not worth the effort. The only thing that will go the distance and stand the test of time is the kingdom of God. Before we dive into the rest of what God has for us, we must get this. The reason that God tells us to be selfless is not because he doesn't care about you. It's because he doesn't want you to care about yourself. No. The reason is actually the opposite. He cares a lot about you. He cares so much about you that he wants to remove the burden of trying to live up to these high expectations and thinking that everything lies on you and that if you fail, it's on you. Instead, he wants to take that burden because he loves you so much and he knows that a life where he's at the center is a life worth living. He wants you to be free from a self-centered life because he knows that a self-centered life is exhausting and unfulfilling. Tonight we will be spending our time in the book of Philippians. 
This book is a letter that the Apostle Paul, who's a guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament, he's writing to the church in Philippi. The church was very generous, and in my opinion, I think it was Paul's favorite church. Like, we're not supposed to have favorites, but I think he had favorites, and this church was his favorite. And he was writing them to thank them for their generosity. But he also, in this letter, responds to some of the problems that this church was experiencing. And one problem was disunity. He's teaching the Philippians that they need to be unified. And in chapter 2, which is what we're reading tonight, he gives them some keys to unity. This letter is to lead us to Jesus and look to him as king and to worship him. He tells the Philippians, starting in verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself. The king of the universe, God himself, humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this family. Thank you for everyone in this room. I know that you have a big plan for tonight, and that you want to speak. God, I pray that you will speak through me tonight and that our community will become a community that is so focused on you that we can't be worried about ourselves. We love you so much, Jesus. Amen. All right, if you get one thing tonight, if you're going to write one thing down, write it on your arm, put it in your phone, this is it. Ready? It's crazy. When Jesus rules our hearts, we become selfless. It's not that crazy. When Jesus rules our hearts, we become selfless. So this begs the question, how are we selfless? Thank you for asking. If we want to put Jesus in the center of our lives, we must look to Scripture to figure out how to become selfless. Paul really illustrates selflessness through this passage in Philippians. Throughout these verses, Paul gives us at least three ways to be selfless. There might be more than that, but I only got three. And the first thing that Paul commands us to have is godly ambition. Verse 3 tells us to, to not do anything from selfish ambition, but to instead to count others as more significant than ourselves. We must look at situations and not think, how can I get ahead, but instead, how can I benefit others? This selfish ambition will drive a person to have vain conceit, it says. And if you look at the Greek word, which is the the language that the New Testament was written in, for vain conceit, it's the combination of two words, empty glory. It's a glory that is a false illusion, illusion of power, prestige, that puts others down to raise yourself up. This is the opposite of what Jesus did. Jesus literally lowered himself to humanity in order to raise us all up into an eternity with him in his kingdom. When Paul says to count others as more significant, what he is saying is to place the needs of other people above our own personal agendas. He's not saying to beat yourself up, but instead he's urging you to value other people above yourself. And that's a positive thing. He's not saying don't have any ambition. He doesn't say don't have any ambition at all, don't have any goals. He's not saying that. But instead he's saying have your ambition not be driven by you getting first place, but instead have your ambition be driven driven by how can the people around you and how can God get first place. We need to turn our worldly ambition into a godly ambition. John Tyson, who's one of my favorite pastors in New York City, has a sermon on this, and he stresses that it is okay to have ambition, but our ambition must be centered on God. In his sermon, he talks about that God is looking for people who have goals, who have dreams, who have visions, but he wants those ambitions to be centered on Jesus. He says this quote, and I love it. He says that Jesus is looking for people to care about what he cares about. Jesus is looking for people to care about what he cares about. 
but we have to turn that selfish ambition into a godly ambition. In order to do that, we have to change our mindset. We have to find what God is calling us to do, not so we can advance our own kingdom, but so we can advance the kingdom of God. Instead of thinking, how can I be more comfortable? How can I look better? Or how can I succeed? We need to change our thinking to how can I glorify God? If we will put other people in the center of our concern, this will cause a seismic shift in our personal lives and our community. If we want to create a community centered on the heart of Jesus, we have to put other people in the center. We can have ambition. Please have goals. Please have dreams. But make them centered on advancing the kingdom of God. I'll be, if I'm honest with you, I'm a pretty ambitious person. I like to do well. But that's not always centered on Jesus. A lot of times it's centered on making myself exalted. This was particularly true in high school. So I was a person who really wanted to get good grades. I really wanted an A's. But I'll be honest with you, it wasn't so I can just succeed and do well and honor God with my test scores. It's because I want to look smarter than everyone else around me. And I want to say, yep, I got the 100%. That's right. That was me. And this was great. I felt so good about it. So I'm like, okay, there's this other smart friend of mine. Let's take the ACT at the same time so we'll get our scores back, make a little competition. We take the ACT, get it back a few months later. I get my score, and I'm like, okay, I did pretty good. I felt really good about it. And then I text him, and the dude, if you know the ACT, it's out of 36. The dude got a 35. He almost got a perfect score. And I went from being stoked about my ACT score to ticked. I'm like, okay, I got to do this thing again or something because he's not going to beat me. I didn't do it again. But... I was mad. So I went from happy, having a good ambition when it was centered on just doing well, to when it was centered on me and looking better than other people, ticked off in a second because I didn't beat my friend. And I think selfish ambition can really be summed up through our culture, through things like TikTok and Instagram and YouTube and Snapchat. Our Instagram model, YouTube sensation culture, has magnified selfish ambition. If you spend 30 minutes, okay, we're going to get real for a second. If you spend 30 minutes trying to decide what filter to use on Instagram, or if you keep taking the same selfie over and over again, you might have a problem. In our social media culture, we're all trying to come across like, I got it all together, mm-hmm. Like, I got, you have like your Bible in the back that you haven't really opened, you got like a coffee cup, you're like, hmm, posted. Because we want to feel better about ourselves. We want to get more likes. We want to look like we're valued. And that is not godly ambition, my friends. That is called conceit. The culture of having a strong internet presence just inflates our egos and certainly keeps ourselves in the center of our own universe. If you, str if you struggle with this, I totally get it. I had a YouTube channel in high school that got like 100, not subscribers, like 100 likes. And it's really embarrassing. Please don't find it. They're terrible, terrible videos. I shouldn't have said that. I get it. I wanted, I wanted my YouTube channel to be awesome, and those videos were so bad. So if you struggle with this, I get it, and I'm not judging you. I promise you that. And God has a ton of grace for you. I just want to implore you, though, that while the world is going one way in this and trying to get more likes and more followers, let's be followers of Jesus that go the other way. We have to avoid the trap. Let Jesus get into our heart and change our top priority from promoting self to promoting God and promoting others. Not only should we change so that we can submit to Jesus and follow Jesus better, but if I'm being honest with you, a life of self-promotion and selfish ambition sounds really exhausting. As to Tozer, my friend, argues in his book, the way to remove the heavy burdens of life is to put Jesus at the center. So the burden of life is when the center of our core 
is us. So when we mess up, when we struggle, it hurts. But if we remove ourselves from there and put Jesus there, if we screw up, it's okay. So for example, let's say we post that post. I know I've done this. And it gets like four likes. You're not as broken. It's okay I only got four likes because Jesus still loves me. This is good. But man, it's sad when you only get like two likes. Especially for me, those two likes are usually my mom and Pastor Daniel, who is my brother. And he's here. And he likes everything, so I don't even feel good about him either. Because he's like, someone says like, I went to the bathroom, like, he likes it all. So I'm like, great. That's the only people, my own wife won't even like it. But my mom and Daniel will. So when that's on me, that hurts. Because then I feel like I lost my worth. My value wasn't getting likes. And when I don't get likes, I'm sad. However, if we truly put Jesus at the center of our universe, and we focus on this godly ambition, we can walk with lightness. Because when we post a Bible verse, like we post, like, I'm going to deny myself today, and only your mom and Pastor Daniel like it, it's okay. We're just trying to promote Jesus, not promote ourselves. So it's not me they don't like, it's Jesus they don't like, and that's between them and God. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It's a much less exhausting way to live. When we remove ourselves from the center of our universe, we won't be as broken when things don't go the way we want. For example, if we fail a test, if God is the center of our universe, it's okay. Because that doesn't mean I'm a failure. It means I stink at math. And that's okay because God is the center. But if we're seeking selfish ambition, we are crushed because that becomes our identity. When we fail a test, we fail as people. And that's because we are the center. And I've struggled with this so much. I remember I got like a B on a test in like third grade and I ripped it. I was so mad. I was a butt as a kid. Let us be a people that instead of being focused on improving our Instagram game, getting subscribers, and looking good to the outside world, we are focused on fulfilling the godly call over our lives, which, if I'm being honest, is probably not getting 1,000 likes on your most recent selfie, or for me, getting three likes, one more than my mom and Daniel. Try and find what God is calling you to do. That's the key to living a God-centered life. If God has called you to be a teacher like he has my wife, then be the best teacher in the world. However, if you're only teaching, you're only doing this call to get praised, and the only reason you do it is because then someone's going to tell you you're good at it, it might be time to look at your options. If you find yourself doing something just for the recognition, it might be time to reevaluate whether or not you should be doing it and whether or not God has called you to do it. When looking at your future job or calling, you need to ask yourself the why behind it. Do you want to be in business to make a lot of money and give to missions, or do you want to do it so you can climb the social ladder and have the appearance of wealth? Do you want to be in ministry, which is what I do? Do you want to be a pastor or be in ministry to see people's lives changed? Or just because it sounds fun and you want to be on a stage? If you try really hard in school to get good grades, I want to say, first off, that's a very good thing. Please try hard. I've tried hard. I try to get good grades. However, you have to look at the reasoning behind it. Are you trying to get good grades so that you can have excellence and do everything well? Or so that you can look good next to your peers? And if your schoolwork is, listen to this, if your schoolwork is coming before your walk with Jesus, I can promise you that is not a godly ambition, that it's a selfish ambition. If your schoolwork comes before making disciples or helping your friends look like Jesus, if it comes before going to small group, if you say, I can't go to small group, I got homework, it's probably not a godly ambition that's driving you to do it. It's probably a selfish ambition of trying to look good because a godly ambition will put things where they belong. And if you desire to have good grades as a godly one, if that's a godly desire, you will put godly activities in front of it. 
And again, please don't get me wrong. Please try hard. This is not an excuse for you to fail your classes. Granted, then you can hang out with me longer. You have to keep retaking those classes. So then you're in Kyle for forever. So maybe that'd be good. But then you'd have a lot of debt, and that'd be sad too. So if you struggle, if you struggle with the trap of feeling too busy for things, too busy for God sometimes, I've been there. I struggle with this a lot. This is who I have a challenge for you. Please listen up if you're someone who always says you're busy. I want you to make a list. Not right now. Do it after. Make a list of all the things you do in life. The things that take your time. And rank them and how important they are to you. Make a list and rank them. How important are they to me? And then with the similar list, rank them on how much time you spend on each activity. How much time you spend doing something is probably going to tell you how important it is to your life. We all have 24 hours a day. We are all equally as busy because we all have the exact same block. The difference is our priorities and what we choose to do. If you spend more time studying than you do with Jesus, than you do with your small group, then school's probably more important to you than Jesus right now. And again, I'm not judging you. I'm just stating facts. And I would venture to say that your ambition towards excellence, which is something I've had a lot of, so again, no judgment, but if you have an ambition towards excellence in academics or excellence in anything, if it's not a godly one and it's rooted in selfish ambition, then it's in the wrong place in your life. And you have to put God first. We have to have a godly ambition that will look to what God has called us to do, and we will not be content until we fulfill that calling. A good example of this is, again, John Griffin is on the drums. Casey Griffin came up earlier. They are two of our interns with Chi Alpha, and they feel called to help people look more like Jesus. And they do everything in their power to make that happen. I'm going to brag them up. They're two of my closest friends, and I love them to pieces, so I'm going to brag on them. They meet with a ton of students. You guys get hung out with them all the time. They lead small groups so well. They have hard conversations. They care so much, and they give their lives to seeing this community become what they're called to. Because they have a kingdom vision. They have a vision of seeing students, seeing us, look a little bit more like Jesus. And they say, I'm going to do whatever it takes not to exalt myself, but to exalt God. And so they have to sacrifice things. They're gone literally like every night of the week. I don't even know when the last time they've seen each other during the evening, because they're crazy. I literally, every time on Instagram, Casey's like with some small group girl doing like face mask. I'm like, what's John doing, playing video games or something? <laughs> I'm just kidding. We have to aspire to have a godly ambition. If we want to be selfless, we must turn our worldly ambition into a godly one. As Paul says in verse 3. But we must continue on to verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So first we have to have a godly ambition, and then we have to have godly interests. The biggest interest of God is for you to love him and for you to love the people around you. That's why Paul tells us not to look to our own interests, but to the interests of others. I think many times we are so focused on what's going on in our own lives that we fail to look around us to see our friends hurting and needing us. Think about your past few conversations. Were they centered on you? Or were they centered on the person you were talking to? As we focus on others, we will not be so preoccupied with the concerns of our own life. We will start thinking less about our own struggles and worries, and we will look to the people around us and how we can help them. And this will take ourselves out of the center of our own universe and put God there. We all know that person, that every time you get, sit down to talk to them, like you're drinking coffee, sit next to each other, they're like, hey, how are you? And then they go for like 55 minutes, about brrr, just keep talking and talking and talking. And then they're at the end of your conversation, and like, oh, I've been talking a lot, haven't I? I'm so sorry. What's new with you? And then you say like, oh, I started, and they're like, oh, sorry, I got to go. <laughs> and they go to their next class. That is the definition of looking to our own interests. However, a person who has godly interests 
is going to be someone who's interested in the people around them. And a great example of this is Tyler Martin, who was playing the keys. All my people I wrote in here were on the stage. This is working out well for me. He was playing the piano. He loves God and people so much. And I'm one of his leaders. So the point of our conversations is for us to talk about him. That's the point of it, so that makes it a little different. And I'll be like, how are you, Tyler? And then he'll talk for a little bit. He's like, and how are you? And then I'm like, well, how are you? And then we, like, have a little argument about it. <laughs> and then I'm like, Tyler, how can I pray for you? And he gives me an answer. It's usually like, I'm doing really well. I'm just kidding. Tyler's great. But then every time, and Derek, how can I pray for you? Like, ooh, I get prayer today. This is fun. <laughs> because Tyler Martin is a person who's not just centered on himself, but instead he's centered on God and other people. It's okay to open up and focus. I want you to get this. It's okay to open up and have conversations that are just centered on you sometimes. We all need that sometimes. We all need people in our lives that we talk a little bit more about ourselves and they're our leaders, they're our small group leaders, they're our pastors. That's okay. I'm not saying that's bad. What I'm asking you to do is to think about, are all your conversations just about you? Because that's when the issue arises. Again, please have a mentor. Go to a small group. But when you talk to your small group leader, more of your conversations are probably going to be about you than them. That's okay. But when you look to your friends around you, people in your classes, people in your small group, examine your life and say, is it about me or is it about them? Go out of your way to meet someone new in your small group and go talk to them. Go to your classes and ask your friends, how are they doing? Take interest in what interests other people. We cannot be a people that is solely focused on our own lives. We must be selfless enough to look at the lives of others. Examine your thought life. Be honest with yourself. Are you constantly thinking about yourself? When you wake up in the morning, is the first thing you think about yourself or is it other people? For me, to be honest, most of the time it's myself. So I'm preaching at myself. Every, when I was writing this, I'm like, dang it, now I got to, oh, dang it, I stink of that too. So don't feel bad. You're in good company. But let's all try to be a little less selfish. We have to stop being so focused on ourselves. We must take ourselves out of the center of our lives and put Jesus and, as a result, other people there. It's going to take some rewiring of our brains. It's going to take some time, but that's what God has commanded us to do. We have to be different from the rest of our culture. And here's the truth. Here's the fun stuff. It is impossible to be selfless on our own. We simply do not have it within us. We cannot try hard enough to be selfless. Instead, we must look to the godly example to find selflessness. And in this letter to the church in Philippi, Paul gives us the godly example, starting in verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, this is God. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The ultimate example of selflessness was in the form of Jesus Christ on a cross. Jesus, who was God, became a poor, humble baby who was selfless to the point of death. Jesus looked at us and he saw just how sinful, just how messed up we all were. And he said, that simply won't do. I have to pay the price for their sin. If this is your first time with us, or maybe you've never heard this story of Jesus, I want you to get this. Jesus loves you so, so much. He loves you so much that he was willing to do whatever it took to get to you. Because of our brokenness, because of our sin, Jesus looked at us and he saw a huge gap. 
Because Jesus is perfect. He's all the way over here. He's perfect. And then miles and miles away over there is us because we keep screwing up and walking farther away from him. And instead of Jesus being over here and saying, all right, I'm going to stand here and you run to me. No, Jesus took off in a sprint and ran right after you to the point of death. He died for you and paid the penalty for your sin. Imagine the judge. We talk about this little illustration all the time, but we can't forget it. Imagine the judge on the judge's table looking down and saying, you deserve the death penalty. That's what you deserve. But I'm going to pay the penalty. He gets off his judge's table and he comes and says, I'm going to pay the penalty for you. That's the God we serve. And the way that he did this, the way that he paid our penalty was he picked up his cross and he died on it for us. The key to his exalting as king was his humbling as servant on a cross. And that should move us. If our king, our God, our savior was willing to be selfless for us, the least we can do in return is be selfless for him. The center of Jesus' universe was not Jesus. The center of Jesus' universe was us. And in return, our response should be the same. The center of our universe should not be us, but it should be King Jesus. In order to put him where he belongs, we have to take ourselves out of the center of our own universe, and we have to put him there. How do we do this, though? Jesus answers this question in Matthew 16, which is what we looked at at the beginning of tonight. Then Jesus told his disciples, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? That's the answer to being like Jesus. We must deny ourselves, take up our cross, and follow him. That means that sometimes we make the choice that doesn't benefit us the most. Will I study for this test, or will I hang out with my friend who's hurting? We must be willing to pick up our cross and lay our schoolwork, our ambition, our image, our futures, and everything else at the feet of Jesus and say, not my will, but your will be done. And we cannot, please understand this, we cannot do this on our own. In our own, we will never choose others. Naturally, I am so selfish. Naturally, I care only about myself. The only way that I can even attempt to choose other people is by looking at Jesus and looking at the example of him and saying, God, help me. When Jesus gets a hold of our hearts, when we get the truth of Jesus Christ, a God becoming man and dying on a cross for us, giving everything for us. When we get that truth inside of us, it'll change us. If we let Jesus rule our hearts, our desires will change. We won't quite understand it, but we'll start putting other people above ourselves. The only way to become selfless is to let Jesus rule our hearts. Otherwise, we will always choose selfishness. Before Jesus was on a cross, so Jesus, he's sitting in a garden and he's praying to God. And he's saying, God, do I really have to die for their sins? Do I have to do this? But he doesn't stop there. He says, but not my will, but let your will be done. So Jesus knew it was going to be painful. Jesus knew that dying for us was not going to be a fun experience. It was not something he was going to enjoy. But he chose to do it anyways because it was the will of God and because he loved us so much. 
He loves you so much. If you feel an emptiness or a brokenness inside of you, if you feel like you're not worthy, if you've ever felt not good enough, the God of the universe, the creator of heaven and earth, wants you to know that he loves you and that you are worthy, not on your own, no, but through him, he calls you worthy. He calls you son. He calls you daughter. We live in a society that says, if you don't want to do something, if you don't enjoy it, you don't have to do it. That's not the gospel that Jesus preached. Jesus tells us to put others above ourselves. Maybe you don't want to go to small group. Maybe you have a lot of homework and you don't want to go. We are called to deny our own wants and to say, Jesus, not my will, but your will be done. I'm going to do my homework later. I'm going to stay up later because I need to be a small group to help my friends get closer to Jesus. Maybe that means if you're in this place and you have a job and you work so much that you don't have time for Jesus or you don't have time for your friends, you don't have time for Chi Alpha, that you need to stop working so much, that you're letting finances be the Lord of your life and not Jesus, that you need to lay your financial security at the feet of Jesus and say, not my will, but your will be done. God is calling us to deny ourselves, to deny our desires, and to come die with him. Jesus died for us, so we must die to self, because whoever loses his life for the cause of Christ will gain eternity. That's what Jesus says in verse 25, for whoever would save his life will lose it. So if you try so hard, ooh, that was a punch. If you try so hard, you work so hard, you do whatever it takes, and you just care about you, 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 or me, 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 you're gonna lose your life, because at the end, everyone dies. But instead, if we say, I'm gonna give my life to God, and I'm gonna let him rule my life, and Jesus will rule my heart, when we die, there's eternity with the King of Kings waiting for us. Because whoever loses his life for his sake is going to find it. He's saying that when we give up being centered on ourselves, when we orient our lives in the gospel of Jesus, we will truly find our lives. That is the key to a fulfilling life. So yes, we want to do these things because we want to honor God. But I think it's more than that. Living a self-centered life is not a happy life. The more we are consumed with ourselves, the more we realize that we are not enough. We are not good enough to fill the hole in our lives. All the money, all the Instagram likes, all the YouTube subscribers, all the good test scores will not satisfy. Living a me-centered life is exhausting and unfulfilling. The burden to perform is so heavy that we are constantly stressed because we can never live up to these expectations that only God can live up to in our lives. We simply are not good enough to be the king of our lives. The only satisfying life is one that is sold out for Jesus. I promise you that nothing will bring more joy to your life than seeing your friends find life through Jesus. When I was in college, my life was mainly focused on leading a Chi Alpha small group. That was my main job as a student. And I promise you that nothing will bring you more joy than seeing your friends look more like Jesus. Nothing has brought me more satisfaction, not my marriage, not preaching a sermon, not playing my guitar, which I love very much, not going on vacations. Nothing has brought me quite the same satisfaction as when I see Tyler Martin and Victor Martinez and Ryan Bettinga, Jacob Enos and Forrest Estrom lead small groups and run after other guys and say, I'm gonna give my life to them. Nothing has brought me the joy that it has seeing them. 
nothing has brought me fulfillment like seeing guys like Andrew Piper and Nick Hansen and Nick Lighting and Jaden Scott and other guys who have been in my small group look a little bit more like Jesus. Nothing compares to that feeling of helping our friends look like Jesus. I promise you. I've tried many other things and it does not do. The only thing that fulfills is God and seeing our friends become like God. I promise you that having a life-giving relationship with Jesus is the only thing that will fill the empty void in your life. The only way to find joy, if you're in this place and you feel like you're lacking joy, the only way to find it and to find meaning is to give your life to a cause that is bigger than yourself. To die to self and live to Christ. Remember what I said, the main idea tonight is that when Jesus rules our hearts, we become selfless. The reason behind this is that when we get the story of Jesus dying for us in our bones, the only response is to put him at the center of our universe. And that's the only time we'll find joy. Maybe you're in this place and you've been living a very self-centered life. You are not alone. Each and every one of us struggle with this. We focus too much on ourselves. Tonight is the night that we as a community, we as Chi Alpha as a family decide to change that. And if you want to look more like Jesus and be an effective witness for God and fill the hole that might be in your life right now, look to the example of Jesus and die to self and live to him. Stop spending so much time talking about your own interests, focusing on improving your Instagram following, and instead take interest in the people around you. Seek out relationships that may not benefit you, but they will benefit other people. Maybe you're in this place and you haven't been living a life for Jesus at all. Maybe you once followed Jesus and you've fallen away. Or maybe you've never given your life to Jesus. Maybe this is the first time you've heard the story of this guy named Jesus. However, when you're in this place, you feel an emptiness. Something's missing. You feel like, I need something else. This isn't good enough. This cannot possibly be all that life has to offer. If that is you, I hope that the thought of a king, not only a king, but a creator of the universe, dying for you, I hope that thought compels you. And if that is you, if you're in this place and you realize something has to change, whether you're living a life-centered or a self-centered life or you haven't given your life to Jesus at all, tonight is the night that we change that, my friends. Tonight is the night that we submit to King Jesus, that we say to Jesus, whatever you say goes. If you say jump, I'm not going to question why. I'm going to say how high. Jesus loves you so much, and that's the reason we do this. We don't just serve this king because he's some mystical being up in the clouds that we believe in. We serve this king because he was willing to put his own stake in the game. He came and lived a perfect life and died for us. And all he wants in return is for us to trust him. If you all stand with me. We have a calling. We have a calling that does not make sense to the world around us. We are called to deny ourselves, to deny our own ambition, to deny our grades, deny our interests, deny talking about ourselves over and over again. And look to the example of Jesus and put other people above ourselves. The only way to do this is to let Jesus rule our hearts. We have to fall so madly in love with him that he becomes the center of our everything. That we have the freedom to rely on Jesus. It's not all on you. If you screw up, it's not all on you because Jesus is king and if Jesus is the center of your life, there's no standard you have to live up to. All you have to do is submit and say, my king, let your will be done. 
And that is the most freeing and liberating life we can live because then we remove the burden of self and we instead focus on the burden of God. We have the freedom to rely on Jesus and let him remove our burden. The yoke is easy and the burden is light if God is the center. Life is easier and more fulfilling if we are not consumed by self. As Jesus says, the only way to find life is to lose it. The only way that we can find a life worth living is to lose it at his feet. So we're going to worship in this place tonight. We're going to go after God with everything we have for a few moments.